This is the Investment Intelligence Podcast by Allianz Global Investors, sharing knowledge about all things investing. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, JP Vicente, and you're listening to the Investment Intelligence Podcast. My guest today is Walter Price, a senior portfolio manager with Allianz Global Investors, a four-decade industry veteran, and an absolute expert in technology investing. And we have a lot to discuss today because many challenges remain as the global economy tries to find its post-pandemic footing. We have supply chain strains, labor shortages, climate change, and we're learning to adapt to a new normal where more and more people will still be working from home. All of these issues create hurdles to businesses in general, including technology companies, of course. The difference, however, is that the technology sector, perhaps more than any other sector, is in a privileged position to create solutions that not only can address its own issues, but also those of the entire spectrum of business activities. And this could set the stage for strong opportunities in the sector, including cloud computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and many others. Well, Walt and I explored all of those opportunities and much more in this episode of the podcast. So if you're into tech investing, you can't miss this show. So now without any further ado, let's get right to it. Hi, Walt. Thanks for being here with us today. Before we get started, please tell us who you are and what you do here at Allianz Global Investors. Yeah, I'm a managing director at um, Alliance Global Investors, and I co-manage several of the technology portfolios at uh, Alliance with my uh, team of four other people. That's great. Thanks, Walt, and welcome to the podcast. It really is great to have you back on the show to talk about the mighty technology sector. In fact, I believe that few would argue that the technology sector has been anything but an incredible bastion of resilience during the pandemic, right? From enabling communications and our new work from home lifestyle to allowing us to shop online and order services. I mean, tech companies have certainly been in the limelight during the COVID-19 era. But as we slowly but surely, you know, ease pandemic restrictions, vaccination rates rise and and life seeks to find a new post-pandemic normal, Technology companies are, like um, I guess everybody else, you know, facing a whole new set of challenges, including labor shortages and supply chain disruptions. But perhaps here, too, they can provide some solutions. So, Walt, let me kick us off here by asking you, what's your assessment of the environment for tech companies today and how it differs from what it was during the height of the pandemic? Yeah, I, I look at the environment that is ahead of us for technology as kind of a golden age for uh, technology. Uh, and the reason that I say that is that I think that technology provides a solution to many of the issues that are uh, longer term issues that the world economy has to address, such as uh, climate change and uh, labor shortages brought on by demographics and uh uh, the, the need to diversify the supply chain away from uh, China into other uh, geographical areas. I think you know technology provides a a solution to many of these issues, and and, and I think uh, when you provide a solution to the world's problems, usually that 
that helps your uh, your revenues and your profitability. That's a great, Walt. I want to explore some some of those ideas, some of those themes that you that you're talking about here. Let me start with the issues surrounding labor shortages. So, first, from from your perspective, is this a temporary or a secular issue, and why do you think so? Well, I think it's a secular issue. Uh, demographics are uh, are working uh, to continue this labor shortage for at least the next uh, 10 to 15 years. Uh, that's how long it takes the, the birth rates to increase in uh, countries to offset this labor shortage. Um, and I think that's the earliest you can expect it to end. So it's, it's going to be quite a, a long-term issue. Uh, and it's not just in the U.S., it's in China, it's in Europe, it's in Russia. Uh, all of these countries have had low birth rates and they have... Uh, you know, the baby boom generation that's starting to retire um, or aggressively uh, moving on uh, from the workforce. And so, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, that's a backdrop for adoption of technology. This happened in the 50s. Uh, this happened in the, in the 90s. And, um, you know, we're looking at a sustained period of this tailwind behind technology. That's uh, interesting. Let me break down the, the thought there a little bit. What are the areas within the technology world that are facing or that are likely to face the biggest challenges posed by a shortage of specialized labor? Well, I, I think that um, within the, the technology sector itself, what you're seeing is a rationalization of effort. You know, in, in this period of labor shortage and this period of movement toward uh, a more flexible architecture associated with the cloud, you have enterprises and governments around the world basically deciding that they're going to move their infrastructure to the cloud. You know, there's several reasons for that, but, uh, you know, underlying it's the, you know, it's the labor shortage. It's the fact that, you, you, you know, you can't you can't hire enough cyber security professionals, for example, to secure your environment. Uh, you know, there's there are a million and a half uh, cyber professionals employed in the U.S. Uh, there are open requisitions for two million. So wow. there's a tremendous shortage of professionals just in that subsector of technology. And the only way you're going to solve that problem is uh, by buying more solutions instead of products that need to be monitored and and diagnosed and remediated. Uh, so you're going to buy security as a service. You're going to move to the cloud, so you don't have to do that anymore. You know, I was on a call this morning, and you know, uh, one of the consultants said, "Well, you can build it yourself." Uh, you, this was a solution to monitor all your applications. He said, mm -hmm. "Well, you can build it yourself using these tools that this vendor provides, or you can use another vendor who provides." Uh, uh, the tool and the agent that's intelligent, you just put it on your computer, your server, your program, and it automatically knows what to do. And he said, in this environment, building it yourself is just not a viable option anymore if you have an alternative. So I, I think that that means that, uh, you know, you're going to see this consolidation toward intelligent applications over time. That's interesting. So you think that that's the way that tech companies will be helping other sectors of the economy deal with this problem of shortages as well? Because one thing is specialized labor, right? But it looks like that other companies uh, may have shortages of a different kind of skill set, uh, of labor skill set, that is. And yet 
they can profit from the technology or by partnering with technology companies that will be providing them you know, specific solutions. So can you give me some, some more examples or some extra examples of, of what that means in, in, you know, in reality? Well, I think this whole movement in software towards software as a service is an example of that. Uh, mm-hmm. you look at how the infrastructure that that's being replaced was built. You, you would buy a program and uh, you would buy consulting, you know, you, you might spend a hundred million dollars on that program over, over a period of time, and you would you would spend a billion dollars on consulting with you know one of the other large consulting companies to custom made make that solution uh, or that software into a solution for your company, and then you would have uh, you know most of your IT expenditures would be spent on people maintaining and updating that software for the next twenty years. Today, you're just buying software as a solution. You're buying a a product that the vendor updates the solution every six months, takes all the inputs from its users and prioritizes them and updates it. So, you know, in one day you update your software uh, to the latest version and you stay on the latest version and it's, you know, it's got security, it's got all the, it's starting to build AI into the, the application and you don't have to do that yourself. So, Tremendous uh, productivity improvement by this this new uh, enterprise system, and I think uh, you know the technology companies that can provide those integrated solutions and uh, basically uh, save you know become the the vendor for a, the, an industry are going to really prosper in this environment. I find that to be really interesting and somewhat scary. So, so here's what I mean. It looks like that the more the companies create this type of environment, this overarching environment, and provide holistic solutions, the barriers to entry, like the power of centralization is going to be so big that the barriers to entry will also be very high. Do you agree with that? And uh, if so, what does that do to the competitive environment? Well, I think it, it reduces the uh, competitive environment, but I, I'm not sure the, the competitive environment is, you know, any less intense than it was um, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, there, there are several vendors who are trying to provide these solutions to industries. And, uh, you know, I, I think the whether you're successful as a vendor really depends on your you know that there's this nps score your your satisfaction that your customers have with your product we have a saying in our group that you have to have a successful customer experience and if your customers happy and they're they're happy with your product and it's giving them what they expected then you have the permission to sell them additional products uh, and mm-hmm. you will be a vendor that they'll be happy to do, do more business with. But if you're, uh, you know, if your product isn't working and there was a lot of software, over half the software that was sold in the past never worked, you know, the customer could never get it to work. And so if you're one of those vendors that has software that doesn't work and the customer isn't happy with uh, you're going to have a hard time in this environment. So the good guys are going to get more business, uh, and uh, the, uh, the people that aren't good or, or don't care about their customers or, or just have a marketing program and not a not an implementation program, they're going to fall by the wayside. 
Do you see consolidation or more consolidation happening in the in the na- in the near future, near to medium future? Well, it's consolidation in a in a in a very subsector oriented way. You know, industry specific vendors are starting to get a lot more traction where they provide a total solution to an industry like you know, we own a company in the drug area that's basically providing the infrastructure for drug sales and drug investigation and drug, uh, you know, drug compliance, uh, you know, and they're building out these systems for the industry and the industry's taking the past bespoke sy- systems that are running on premise and they're moving to these cloud-based systems. And, you know, once one company adopts it, then many other companies adopt it and, and you have this, uh, this benefit. And, you know, this company can resist the big guys because they're, you know, they know a lot about the drug industry. They know about, about how drugs are sold, how doctors are contacted. And, uh, and they have a couple competitors that are coming at uh, them from, uh, you know, other sub-segments of the drug industry and other products. But, you know, it, it, that, that will be an example of a vertical software company that uh, is able to resist competition from somebody who has a horizontal solution, for example. So I, I, I think the customers still have a lot of choices, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know it's still a competitive environment. But it's you know once you're installed, uh, you know the thing that we like about this this area and the reason that we have a large investment in software is we think you're 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 building out the infrastructure of the world for the next twenty or thirty years and. Once you're installed and once you're doing a good job for the customer, you've got an annuity that's going to last for decades. And so it's a wonderful business model, even if your growth rate slows down, your cash flow and your ability to manage your company is, is, is much easier. So, um, you know, we're very enthusiastic about that subsector of technology, the software subsector. That's fascinating. Uh, Walt, do you believe that this trend is strong enough to prompt investors to justify a tactical tilt on their portfolios? Well, I mean, you know, if you look at technology as a percent of the market, it's been growing um, pretty mm-hmm. steadily. Um, and I, I think that's going to, uh, you know, that's going to continue. You're, you're going to have more and more industries that are either going to become very good at technology or they could have a technology challenger that uh, usurps their position and becomes the leader in that in that uh, segment. You know, the auto industry is a perfect example. If you're not if you're not getting good at over the air updates and you know updating the software in your car for autonomous driving and uh, you know charging systems uh, with associated with EVs and, and moving to EVs, uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're going to be uh, upended by some of the companies that are able to do that. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that's a challenge for the hundred different companies in the auto industry. You know, if I, if I look out uh, 10 or 15 years, I think, you know, at least half of those hundred aren't going to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I think that's an example of an old industry that's being disrupted by technology, and the companies that come out of that disruption will be good at technology by definition, almost. And and you know, you're going to be looking at more and more industries like that in the in the factory industry, the manufacturing industry. You have this concept of digital twins, which is basically building a, a twin of your actual plant in the 
in an AI environment that optimizes, uh, basically demonstrates how your production is done and then looks at how your best operators optimize production based on the inputs that they're seeing. And you're basically building that into programs. So if you're a chemical company and you're trying to compete with a guy who has a digital twin and, you know, oil oil feedstock prices change and mm-hmm. this digital twin handles that and produces uh, you know five percent better yield than you can get in your plant with your operators scrambling around uh, in each plant you're gonna be out of business I mean five to ten percent margin is is you know is the profit margin in that industry so you know you better be you better be good at technology we're also hearing a lot about supply chain issues that are affecting business in general, and, and some tech giants in, in particular, quite candidly. So talk to me about how tech firms are dealing with this issue and what impact is it having on the sector, both kind of short-term and long-term? Well, I think short-term, uh, there's shortages of everything. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I think, you know, the pandemic, in a sense, completely disrupted supply chains because, um uh, you know, I think there's there, there was a secular force to moving all your production to China. That that was uh, that was kind of the default for the last decade or, or more. Uh, but um, the pandemic uh, disrupted production because people were trying to preserve. Uh, you know, they have these very lean supply chains, and they were trying to preserve their cash flow in a very volatile environment. So. You know, you had auto companies re- trying to return semiconductor parts because production uh, declined during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, once your your population is vaccinated and they go back to, uh, you know, their previous uh, lifestyle or some version of their uh, their new lifestyle, you know, they want to they want to go back to the previous consumption patterns. And meanwhile, a lot of these production lines have been cut and the workers have been laid off and, you know, starting that up and getting those people back is hard. And then, you know, just the logistics of moving all that production back from China uh, back, you know, on, on ships, uh, when you don't have a lot of planes flying, you have to use ships and they're not as, they're not enough ships to handle the volatility. You know, it's creating tremendous shortages of, of everything. I think the the short term effect is, uh, you know, it's going to take a while to start up these supply chains and get production back up. You're going to have companies trying to move uh, their supply chains to closer geographical areas. So you're seeing a lot of plants, uh, you know, semiconductor plants being built in the U.S. instead of in Asia now uh, or in Mm -hmm. Mexico. I mean, for the first time in a long time. So I think that. Uh, you know, that that's the consequence is that there's some longer term fixes that require new plants, new production uh, to alleviate these supply problems. Companies have had a certain amount of demand for their products. Let's call it the aggregate demand for their products. And then you have this disruption. And obviously, we're facing some issues you just mentioned, you know, and, and, and numbered all of them. But do you see when you talk to folks a change in the overall aggregate demand for products? 
Yeah, I mean, we're trying to sort through the shortages into and putting them into two categories. One is temporary shortages, which can get alleviated by uh, simply getting the supply chains back to normal and functioning again, and secular shortages. You know, a secular mm-hmm. shortage would be the shortage of labor and, and developers. Um, I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the secular shortage would be, uh, you know, the shortage of uh, power semiconductors because cars are going from internal combustion engines to to EVs and they use a lot more power semiconductors you know six times as many power semiconductors as a regular car so that's that's mm-hmm. a huge increase in demand that's coming pretty quickly and so uh, you know and this traditionally was the lowest return part of the semiconductor industry so to get these producers to you know, to build new plants, you have to have a, you know, higher return on sales in our view uh, to, to justify building the new plants. And you have to have a tighter working relationship with your customers. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to want to build a plant for the auto companies when, you know, if their first reaction is going to be ship back the parts and ask for a refund, you know, the first time business turns down. I mean, you know, you can't run a, 10-year investment in a semiconductor plant that costs billions of dollars with that with that kind of a customer mentality. So, you know, I think the customer mentality has to change and um, more plants have to get built for that kind of secular shortage. So, um, you know, I think most of the shortages are are slick, cyclical shortages that'll get, get uh, fixed with, uh, you know, better supply chain uh, coordination over the next uh, year. But, you know, there's some secular ones that are going to go on for a long time. That's fascinating because it feels like it's almost like the aggregate demand in general has stayed the same. However, you had a shift of demand or, you know, like, so it's people are still, if, let's say, let's use the example of cars. You know, if I have two cars, I will still have two cars, but I'll just have two different types of cars. And that makes all the difference in the world. Right. I mean, it also creates opportunities. Right. Walt. Yeah. And I I think this gets at, uh, you know, the issue of technology addressing climate change and why, you know, if you look at the car situation, for example, there are 276 million cars in the U.S. fleet. Uh, You know, in a good year, we'll sell 20 million cars in the U.S., uh, you know, the, the easy way to fix a lot of the carbon loading going into the atmosphere is to replace the fleet with electric cars and trucks. You could, you could reduce the amount of carbon going in the atmosphere by 30% if you did that. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Now, if you're going to take 20 or 30 years to do that, you could have a climate environment that's really nasty by the time you finish. So I, I think once you get the viable cars available, Governments are going to push really hard to switch out the fleet. So, you know, that means maybe you're not you're not uh, shipping 20 million cars a year. You're shipping 30 or 40 million cars a year for a period of time because you need to replace, uh, you know, 276 million divided by by 20. I mean, you, you know, you'd like to do that a lot faster. Uh, I see. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think those are some of the issues that, you know, the, the combination, if it if we weren't facing some of these more serious problems with climate change, we kind of take our time and change the, you know, change things slowly. But I, I think we don't have the luxury in some cases to change things slowly. So that, that, that will accelerate the, probably accelerate inflation because we have to do these things faster. 
Walt, let me explore another theme here, which is the work environment in a post-COVID world. Have you identified specific trends or, or practices that you think would be representative of the way we work post-COVID? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the companies found during COVID that they could um, they could they could manage their business um, just as just about as effectively with uh, with less travel and less office time. And, uh, you know, and workers found they could they could get their jobs done uh, with less commuting time, less time in the office. And so, you know, I, I think there's this this major uh, shift of work, um, you know, and it gets at efficiency. So, uh, you know, we're going to take that productivity benefit. And, you know, same thing goes with corporate travel. Now, maybe we have to to go back to maybe half of what we did before, but you know, half of that's going to be savings and productivity improvement to our our sales force and our our managers. Um, and so we're going to take that dividend. <laughs> Some companies say, you know, I I want to walk around the office and see everybody there at seven in the morning and seven at night, so I know I'm I have a productive workforce. And that was their way of kind of managing their culture and managing their their company. Uh, there are other companies that are saying, you know, we can be completely remote and use these modern tools of, of uh, work management and project management, and we don't need them to be in the office all the time. So, I, you know, I think the worker is going to vote for the second alternative because that's better for them. That, that gives them, uh, you know, that gives them a better uh, life-work balance. And so I think companies that are taking a hard line, they're going to have a harder time getting people. And that's why you've seen some of the tech companies, I think, back off of everybody comes back to the office, you know, X days a week. You know, there's they're trying, you know, they realize they have to be more flexible or a lot of their employees, you know, who have multiple job offers uh, will, will leave and go somewhere else. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting. Uh, Walt, I know you chat right, with a lot, and you talk to a lot of tech CEOs all the time. What lessons have they shared with you that you think are particularly interesting as we step out of COVID? Well, I, you know, I, I, I think um, I was listening to a, a CEO talk about, he's a, he goes to the World Economic Forum and, and hangs out with other CEOs. And he said, obviously, you know, we've been talking about the future of work that's subject that's that's in the top three of the subjects that they're talking about i think sustainability mm -hmm. though is number one i mean i think ceos all over the world are trying to figure out how do we deal with this movement towards sustainability this requirement to think about uh you know our planet and how we're affecting it so you know that probably wasn't too much in the consciousness of of companies uh, a few years ago, I think now uh, it, it's much more in the consciousness. And I think shareholders are raising that question. Allianz has a big ESG group that's looking at how companies are approaching, you know, each one of those uh, those three uh, those three issues in, in ESG. And and I think CEOs are responding to that, thinking about that. And, and you know, and I'm happy to say technology is kind of leading, you know leading the way, at least in, in providing solutions, you know, look at this move to cloud computing. I mean, all the, all the big cloud guys are saying, okay, we're going to reduce our footprint of our data centers, which is 
you know, the biggest cost in a data center is power. We're going to reduce mm-hmm. our footprint by moving to hydro or moving to geothermal or or putting solar in, you know, next door, buying buying uh, sustainable resources to fuel our data centers. And as the world shifts their infrastructure, that's a big savings of of uh, energy efficiency and energy source uh, that really helps our planet. So, I mean, I think those are examples of where technology companies are kind of out in front of these changes and it helps their business, but it also helps, uh, you know, it helps uh, the future of their employees and, and, uh, and their customers. Well, that, that is interesting because it, it dovetails into another topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is President Biden's infrastructure plan. We recently had uh, Paul David here uh, on the show. He's the head of our, you know, head of infrastructure debt investing here at the firm. And he raised an interesting point about the quote unquote blurring of the lines, right, between technology and infrastructure. Now, when you look at Biden's plan, for example, it includes investments in electric vehicles, which, you know, you have talked about. There's broadband, there's clean energy. So I'd love to hear your take on this. Has infrastructure gone digital, so to speak, and how should investors look at this particular opportunity? Well, I mean, I, I, I think um, I think it's a great opportunity for technology to really roll up its sleeves and provide solutions to the planet. You know, I, you know, we've talked about the vehicle solution. That's twenty-five to thirty percent of the carbon load that could be eliminated. Uh, you know, obviously, there there are solutions associated with running plants more efficiently uh, that technology can help with. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, when you talk about, um, changing the sources of, uh, energy, um, you know, that's, that's something that, yeah, you, you have to rebuild the infrastructure, the electric infrastructure of the world, the power infrastructure, a lot of the world runs on power, of course, that's the basic component and you can do that. It's going to take a while, uh, you know, 30 years. But you also can use technology to, to suck the, the carbon out of the atmosphere. And I think that those are right now, those are very expensive solutions. That isn't something that you would prefer. But if, you know, if the, if the world is, uh, you know, getting to be a nastier, nastier place, maybe that's an investment that you need to make. So, you know, infrastructure bills or infrastructure investment, uh, that's going to be necessary by all governments, I think, uh, that are responsible, um, can't just keep producing more, you know, more, uh, products using coal fired plants in China. And I, you know, I think they realize that, you know, they've had floods, they've had problems, uh, you know, they're contributing to the problem and they need to even, even they need to address this issue and, and they're starting to, which is good. Uh, it seems to me that that a lot of what we've been talking about here, though, basically leads us to a, a broader theme, I would say, one of, uh, let's call it economic transformation. So, like we just discussed, technology has a huge role to play in it. So, making it real for, for our listeners, Walt, how should investors consider adjusting their portfolios to benefit from this, let's call it macro, quote unquote, macro trend? Well, you know, throughout my career, I, I, I started my career and, and technology was a small part of the S&P. You know, these companies weren't very important. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And now, uh, you know, we're pushing 30% of the S&P uh, in technology. Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, technology still is a great area to invest in. If you're a growth investor, you should invest in technology. But as we pointed out, you know, there, there are lots of cross currents. And so figuring these out in your, you know, by yourself, um, I think is, is pretty difficult. So, uh, you know, buying a portfolio from somebody that's uh, from a team that's thinking about it every day and working on it and trying to create value for investors. uh, You know, I think that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great part of your growth portfolio. Walt, this has been a fantastic conversation, a great conversation as always. Thank you so much for all of your insights. But uh, before I let you go, we have a tradition here on this sh- on the show, and I'd like to get your cultural recommendation. So, what is it that you've been doing besides looking at tech stocks these days? Um, well, one of the things I, I like to do is participate in. Uh, events. And so I, you know, I like to go to sporting events. I like to go to theater events and, you know, that for a year I wasn't able to do that and nobody else was able to do that. So I've been doing, I've been doing that again. And I have to say it feels, you know, I was at a Broadway play a few weeks ago and the audience was so happy to be there. You could just sense (laughs) that everybody was really happy in that theater that, that actors and actresses were happy to be performing in front of a live audience and the audience was happy to be enjoying the, the musical. And so, you know, to me, it's like, wow, it's great to hang out with uh, people and experience these events uh, with other people. Uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that again. Um, you know, I, I think uh, that's something that, that I missed and uh, I hope to do more of it. That's awesome. And what was that play, if I may ask? Oh, it was uh, it was Waitress is the name of the play in New York, in New York City. And, you know, it's it's a feel good play. And, you know, the audience was feeling really good. Um, I have a recommendation as well. Uh, Mine today is actually a documentary series called McCartney 321. And it's available on one of the main streaming services. And it is a poignant, wonderful, long, in-depth interview with Paul McCartney, conducted by no other than Rick Rubin, who is the renowned producer of so many legendary records. The series has six episodes, and each is a journey into McCartney's brain, you know, from his memory of the Beatles recordings. It's really amazing how much detail he remembers, you know, uh, to the way he writes songs and, and, and the things he draws inspiration from. It's really well produced and a must-see for Beatles and McCartney fans. You won't be disappointed, I guarantee. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Walt, once again for being here with us today. And as always, thank you all so so very much for listening. Stay safe, everybody. I think uh, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna look that one up. Uh, that JP, that's that sounds like a great way to spend some time. So, uh, and thank you all for your time listening to this uh, to this podcast, and uh, we appreciate your support. Thank you very much for listening. A quick reminder that you can subscribe to the Investment Intelligence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on your preferred podcast platform. It really makes a difference. Once again, thanks for listening.
This podcast was recorded on October 14, 2021. Investing involves risk. The value of an investment and the income from it will fluctuate, and investors may not get back the principal invested. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. This is a marketing communication. It is for informational purposes only. The information contained in this recording does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security, and shall not be deemed an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. The views and opinions expressed herein, which are subject to change without notice, are those of the issuer or its affiliated companies at the time of publication. Certain data referenced are derived from various sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy or completeness of the data is not guaranteed and no liability is assumed for any direct or consequential losses arising from their use. The duplication, publication, extraction, or transmission of the contents, irrespective of the form, is not permitted. This recording has not been reviewed by any regulatory authorities. In mainland China, it is used only as supporting material to the offshore investment products offered by commercial banks under the Qualified Domestic Institutional Investor Scheme pursuant to applicable rules and regulations. This recording is being distributed by Allianz Global Investors and its affiliates. For a complete list of affiliated entities, please visit AllianzGI.com.